Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to Mulmoneal Property. You're with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Today, we're talking all things accounting as property investors. It's a really important time of the year, June 30 as a deadline, but it doesn't mean that's the only time of year that we concentrate on accounting for tax purposes, does it, Emily? It's very true, John. I often find that people only really think about tax, tax time or tax-related topics come June, but really if you're savvy and smart in the investment space, you're thinking about it all year round. So you might even be revisiting this episode at a later date. And if that's the case, good on you. If you are a new listener to My Millennial Property, welcome. We love hearing from you and topics that you would like to hear about. And today we are talking all things accounting. All right, let's get into it. So, Scott Young from Altus Financial, uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Thank you, Emily. Now, a lot of listeners of the show would have heard Scott previously on My Millennial Money, and a lot of listeners actually use their services at Altus Financial. So, yeah, we'll have their details in the show notes. But, Emily, let's kick us off. What have you got? Well, John, you did a great job of posting in the My Millennial Money Facebook group uh, asking for questions, and the people have definitely uh, delivered. So, let's kick off with the first one. Rachel Alice asks, what is the best practice for record keeping for your investment property? And this question has nine likes. So I think a lot of people want to know the answer to this. Yeah, look, good good question, Rachel. And thanks, Emily. Look, I think um, as, a, as an accountant, look, I am a big believer that um, good records often equals a good outcome, right? And probably my, my counsel on that is that the more organized and systemized you have a process means that things don't get missed. And like, Emily, the key point you sort of said is that what you don't want to be doing is getting to the back end of the year and then spending all your time finding all the information as opposed to storing it in a digital or electronic file across the year. And fundamentally, what it also means is that when your investment property information is collated together, you can look at the performance, um, are, are my costs going up, is uh, is my rent being adjusted? So what people should be doing is keeping some digital spreadsheet or organised file. They could have a sheet for each individual property and then pulling it all together, looking at how the performance of the property is going, but then throughout the year tracking everything. So then it means at the end of the year, or what like you just said and John said, you can look at are there things I should be doing before or after 30 June um, and then fundamentally that just feeds into your tax return each year. Yeah, Yeah, great. So uh, are there any tools and resources out there like I I use a trusty Excel spreadsheet for my bookkeeping and and call it free and basic but it works for me what what do you recommend yeah look good question John and 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 we sort of had this chat beforehand I I still think a a, a trusty or an Excel worksheet works completely fine like we have many clients and, and and again rental properties really don't have many nuances or differences. Like the expenses correlated with all the properties are the same and then there's normally one line item of income which 
is the rental income. So I think a spreadsheet can work. There used to be people that did go through a digital sort of reporting, like a zero file. But I, I, I just think by the time you're spending any time or energy or money on that, as an Excel worksheet just is as, is as good. Yeah. Emily, what do you use? Excel? Yeah, Excel. Uh, I, I purchased a pre-populated one on Etsy, trusty Etsy site uh, that had multiple property options that you could collate and then have like a cover sheet for how your properties are performing. Uh, but yeah, basically just Excel, nothing fancy. Yeah. Okay. And, and the only other thing I was going to say is then, of course, everything feeding into Excel, like uh, copies of your landlord statements and that you should be keeping some digital files of that information in an organised way. So that's all together. You know, all yeah. the rates notices, all the strata levies, um, repairs and maintenance. Now, some of these will be maintained by an agent, but some of them you'll get direct, like insurance, that you should be also be putting it, storing in a file and then updating the spreadsheet. Yeah, cool. So if we were to use Zero, for example, as an accounting software system, would would that be tax deductible as a property investor? Uh, yeah, mate, John, that's right. If it's used, if if the argument is that it's only used solely for the purposes of the maintaining the property records, then yes, you would argue that that is the case. But cool. I just, I think that a spreadsheet is still the simplest option. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Now we're going into capital gains tax, and a lot of listeners will know what capital gains tax is. Some won't. So we'll start basic and then work our way up. But Taryn Pickering says. Uh, how long do you need to live in the investment property to principal place of residence to reset the capital gains tax? Are there any implications from it? Yeah, good. Look, good question, Taryn. Um, I might just quickly just talk just well, what is capital gains tax and just CGT, acknowledge that most listeners understand. So CGT, which is short for capital gains tax, is the tax payable when you realise or sell the property. Okay, so it's fundamentally you buy it, which a whole lot of cost goes into, and then you sell it, hopefully, or in most cases for a profit, and then you're paying tax along the way. Now, one of the strongest points there is that um, the government wants investment, okay, and believes in long-term investment for numerous reasons. So if you hold the asset for over 12 months, you get 50% of the gain tax-free. So this is quite important because the rules are 12 months. So if you sell it within 300 days, you're fully taxable. If you sell it for 370 days, then you are getting half your gain tax-free. Now, back to the point around um, that Taryn asked is, is what the government says is that you, they don't deem your principal place of residence being taxable, right? So the key point there for the listeners is that the family home that you reside in is never taxable unless you make it taxable, which we can talk about a bit later. But point is, uh, so what that means is that it ever earns income. Now, the, the legislation doesn't actually deem a number of days or, or a period of time that defines that it is or isn't your main residence. It's based upon the facts and circumstances, like you resided in the property. It never received income. Um, it was your electoral office. Okay. So all those, and you actually moved in, you collected, you, you, you connected all the utilities and the broadband, right? That deems um, that it is your main residence because what could happen is for whatever reason, you may move in, do all those things and then get offered a job overseas. Okay. Now the fact that you then leave after three months, six months, nine months, whatever it may be, it doesn't mean that it wasn't your main residence. What it means is that that then changed. Okay. So to expand on that, and there's a, a lot of it's been happening in the last maybe five to 10 years is 
I, I go away for a period of time and I Airbnb my property out. So now we've got the situation where, yes, it's my principal place of residence. I haven't got another property as my claimed principal place, but I'm now earning income from that from a short term. How does that work from a tax purposes or yeah, CGT? Yeah, good question. And, and and again, for a lot of the listeners, this this was highly, highly common in the pre-COVID period, right? You, you saw a lot of people get... Um, Jobs overseas, um, where, where, where they may have gone to the UK, gone to the US, gone and traveled, whatever it may be. I guess in the past two years, that has really slowed down, but I, I think it's definitely coming and it's going to pick up again. Um, the, the point there is that, that, that you can treat if you leave your main residence. Okay, and it was your main residence, and you don't go and take up another permanent place of adobe, so you don't buy another property, you can still treat that property as your main residence for a period of time that you're absent. Okay, the period of time is six years, and they're basically acknowledging um, the government's saying, We understand circumstances change. Movement is understood. You could be going regionally. Okay. You get, you get offered a great job, um, in Townsville. So you go and take that job, you rent there, but then you maintain your residence that you lived in and you rent that property out and earn income in it. You can still treat that property for CGT purposes as your main residence when it's sold at a future date. That's actually almost identical to a uh, situation Paul has put forward in the group. And interesting, he was talking about, um, now, you know, making his PPR into um, a rental and where he's going to move for work regionally and rent is actually $50 uh, per fortnight cheaper for him to do that. So not only is he saving some money in a reduced amount of rent or mortgage repayments, um, he's actually getting some money coming in for his uh, PPR by flipping that. And um, so he did ask if I was to lease it out during the time that I went away for work, would I be affected by CGT? So the answer to that is, so long as you move back in within a six month, a six year period, you would not have CGT. Uh, no, actually, Emily. Well, as long as he he lived in resided in the property uh, at first, yeah. Okay, and and he sells it within the six years, then he would be able to rely upon it still being the main residence. Yes. Okay. If he if he holds it for longer, then you're right. Often the way the legislation says is you can move back in because they understand that there can be transient people and that can reset your period again. Okay, so So now the grey area for me has always been how long do I need to live um, back in there for to rejig that six years? Like is it just uh, one week? Is it do we uh, need to pay a utilities bill in there or how does that work? Yeah, good good, good question. And and you can see how people could – could try and um, manipulate or move around to make sure that the rules look uh, according to them. Again, it's it's based on facts and circumstances. There has been there has been prior references um, that three to six months is probably considered a reasonable time. I know many many years ago when they were giving out, and again, I'm probably not as close, a lot of the first homeowners grants. Like I know I got one of these a lot twenty odd years ago, fifteen years ago. Um, there were some really defined periods of time in that that did talk about six to 12 months. The legislation is a little bit looser on that, but you can understand that there's a difference between um, someone moving in, not connecting the – well, someone proposed moving in, not connecting the utilities, not changing their electoral office, and then moving back out within two weeks versus someone that moves, hires a transport company, moves in, connects all the power and water, um, lives in the place – 
right? Um, and then moves back out because circumstances change. It's, it's, it's probably the, the, it's the intention. It's the intention that's probably the critical point. And the intention is supported by what actually practically happened. Yeah. Just along the lines of CGT, while we're still sort of on that, that topic, funnily enough, um, very recently I've had a number of real estate agents approach me with properties that are available for sale, but they've said, look, Emily, um, because we're in June and we're, it's June at the time of recording this episode, they've said we can sell it to you on a letter of intent so it's not a legally binding um, offer, not on a contract of sale, but on July 1, the vendor is happy to sign the contract and it can be delayed, it can be dated July 1. Now, first and foremost, I think we need to touch on the fact that CGT comes into play uh, effectively around the actual date of the contract, not the settlement, because I think a lot of people get confused by that. They're two different things. But then I also want to touch on the timing of selling a property and what factors would come into play as to why you might sell in FY 2022 versus FY 2023. Yep. Um, brilliant. And and one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is the timing on when you crystallize again, right? So um, that you're exactly spot on. A lot of people do get confused that, hang on, I didn't actually take possession of the property until settlement, right? But you're right, from a taxing point of view, it's exchange, right? Which is signing of the contracts. So let's just use the example you just said. If, if you sign that contract on the 29th of June, okay, you've created that tax event in this current financial year. Right now, all things being equal, if you went and lodged your tax return yourself, that means you'd be paying your tax in October, right? About th- three or four months after the end of the year. Use a tax agent, maybe nine months. If you sign that contract two or three days later on the 2nd of July, right, which you are allowed to do, you're not breaking any rules by doing that, your tax is not going to be due, that financial is not going to finish for another 12 months, which means your taxes aren't going to be due for sort of 15 months, okay? Or even if you lodge through, through a tax agent, May 2024, mm. which means say you did make a big gain, that gives you the benefit of having those proceeds for nearly a 24-month period. Okay, so probably the timing on when you pay the tax is probably the one point. The second thing would be is that circumstances can change, right? So say, for example, um, you were working this whole year, you were then planning on going overseas for six or nine months, you weren't going to get paid for that period, okay? Um, Your capital gain gets added to your normal earnings in the year. So in a year that you're actually going to earn less, is your ideal year to realise a gain if you were going to realise a gain, right? So if you were going to sell something, you'd be selling it for a gain in a year when you're going to earn less. And that could be because you're off at work, you could be on maternity leave, you could be, um, people could be retiring. Okay, retirees are a big planning point. You know, they finish, they stop all their um, employment income. Okay, they shouldn't be selling um, in a year with high employment income plus a capital gain, they'd be better off real pushing it to the other side of the year. Now, of course, you've got to make sure that market forces still allow you to get the price that you want in the market that it is, but, but you're absolutely right. Definitely in that June, July period, you do see people planning around how they, when they realise that gain. Yeah, I think that's pretty yeah. critical. You don't want to, I mean, for the sake of three days saving you potentially, you know, a big tax bill, if you're able to reduce it by being strategic as to when you actually realise that, 
Uh, I think that's crucial and just is so evident as to why people do need proper advice, accounting advice when it comes to these things. Yeah, and the only other thing I was going to say, Emily, is the benefit if you did do it on the 2nd or 3rd of July is is if you wanted to do other things to potentially reduce the gain, like super contributions or any other strategies that it may be, it gives you a whole 12-month period to sort of think through what's best for you right, and, and, and your plans versus if you're doing things in the last week of June, it doesn't really give you a lot of time to plan out things. And then often you see people do things in a hurry and often that correlates with maybe a poor longer-term decision. You know, had they had more time to think about it, they may have made a different decision. Mm. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about more tax benefits as an investor after the break, but I think that last point you mentioned about, well, holding off when you're in a low-income environment versus a high-income for, for capital gains uh, implications is an interesting one compared to market conditions. Like you, you, it might actually be a negative if you hold off and the market dips and, you, and you're selling there. So understanding that tax is a, just a, a component of your investing, not the sole purpose for investing, isn't it? Oh, 100%. We always say tax, tax should, the investment, the investment decision should be first and foremost. Mm. Okay. And then how you then effectively manage your affairs and how tax comes off the back of it should, should be secondary to it. Right. But it shouldn't be, I'm not going to sell this because I'm going to pay too much tax when you go, well, hang on, well, what does the investment thesis look like first? Yeah, yeah. If the investment thesis says, I feel this has, has given me a, a fantastic investment return and, and I'm worried about its future growth potential, maybe I should be realising and reinvesting elsewhere, that should come first and then how you manage and the tax secondary to that is always my view on that. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So another good question from Taryn Pickering. She says, and I think it's a straightforward one for you, Youngie. You'll be all over this one. If we have an, an investment property and refinance to draw on the equity, is the new interest payable amount fully tax deductible? Yeah, good one, John. Um, and good question, Taryn. Um, it, so the way the way things are looked at, it it's the use that the borrowed funds uh, are put towards that determines the tax deductibility of it, right? So it's not the asset that decides it, and this is where also careful planning uh, or planning is important because as Taryn said, if, if you have an investment property and you, you refinance to go on a holiday, then the amount that you're, ref, you're refinanced or drawn out is for private purposes. So that portion is not tax deductible. Now, you can understand that if someone's done that in, and, and put all that into one loan, they've just created complexity in the way they've set up their borrowing arrangements because in effect, a portion of that loan's always going to be private versus portions, um, uh, tax deductible, right? Equally on the other side is, and I think this, this is where longer term planning, um, on, on your strategies is important. Like you see people normally move through a property cycle, like they, they move into a townhouse or a unit or even the unit into a townhouse, into a home, right? And sometimes they sit back and still maintain or own their existing property, their first properties, right? Because they thought they were a great investment, they're going to rent it out or otherwise, right? So this is where making sure that they're getting the right advice from a broker or structuring their borrowing affairs from the outset are important because if you, if you start paying down loans, that then become investment loans, you may regret that later on. Yeah, and and when you think about that conceptually, in, in Taryn's example, let's say you pull fifty grand from the investment property, it's done well for you, you've been able to pull that equity out and it's now sitting there in an account. You use thirty of it for a deposit on a property and twenty of it on a holiday to Paris. Like that's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It? Yeah, for an, for an accountant, <laughs> for anyone. So make sure you separate those funds clearly. Yeah, and, and also as you can see there, like if if Taryn in that case you did separate those funds, what you'd then be doing if you then come across surplus funds is you'd be paying down the twenty grand Paris holiday loan first, right? Because it's the one that's not tax deductible. Right? But if all, if it's all in one bucket of funds, you can't say on the 250 loan, I'm choosing to pay off my non-deductible debt first. No, you're yeah. paying off everything in proportion yeah. with every dollar you're paying down. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Another question for a slight change of um, pace comes from Sarah Ingleton. And Sarah asks, what are the benefits or tax benefits of purchasing or investing as a trust? And I'm assuming this is as opposed to, you know, solely in your own name or yourself and a partner or friend or family. Yeah, look, um, good question, Sarah. Look, a a trust is a structure that you're allowed to set up and often people use them for investment purposes. Now, again, I I think I've said this on other episodes, I'm an advocate of structures, but only if they provide a benefit. Okay, you shouldn't have structures for structure's sake um, because they're more costly, they're more complex to administer. So you've got to be pretty sure that they are going to provide you a benefit, right? In situations on property, when they are negatively geared, okay, um, trusts are normally not a suitable structure because part uh, the loss or the negative gearing is is stuck in that trust okay it can't be utilized by someone who's earning a salary so normally that strategy from a cash flow perspective is is probably not not a very good one 
right? Where a trust can work is if it is positively geared, okay? If there are numerous parties entering into a, 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 a development or a property, um, together, okay, with a defined purpose, okay? Or whether they feel they're happy to have the short term, um, loss being captured in the trust because they feel long term there's going to be a really big capital gain and they want to have the flexibility of where they distribute that at a future date. And are there um, different, if you're buying and selling in a trust, are there different like rates of tax within a trust compared to buying in your sole name and then maybe a gain being added to your taxable income for that year? Yeah, look, good question. So tr- trusts are treated a little bit differently, but ultimately what happens is at the end of the year, whatever that gain is, the trust, the trustee distributes that to the beneficiaries, right? So the benefit of that is that you have flexibility. So if, for example, you have a couple um, and, and, and someone earns more than the other, the trust would decide to distribute that profit through to the lowest taxable earnings in, in, in the relationship. Right. Um, you can see family dynamics always change and so forth. Whereas if it's held in, in an individual's name, there is no flexibility. Right. When the gain is finally realized, it goes to the person who, who, who owns that property and you don't have the ability to then decide how or who it should be allocated to. Yeah. So, so I think you've sort of answered this in your summary, Scott, but why would you set up as a trust? Yeah. Look, uh, commonly, if it's if if it's just buying you know a first investment property or otherwise that you're going to have a level of borrowing against it, um, you wouldn't, right? Where you would come to is probably is is if if there was no debt on it, like you received an inheritance. Um, if you wanted to, or if you felt that your line of work had had a high degree of risk, and you wanted to asset protect where you were investment, investing from a strategy perspective, because that means that these assets are not held or owned by you. Okay, or where you do see it is is, and it is actually someone who has has referenced this is is it could be where you want to do like a project together, right? So it could be that a number of families could be two or three, it could be friends. Say, look. Um, why don't we pool our resources? There's a great block of land. Um, we should be building three townhouses together. So they want to do a def- specified project, okay, which makes it easier that you create an entity that then goes about and carries on the project on behalf of the investors, right? Because then, then the entity is the one that borrows the money from the bank. The entity is the one that goes and engages the builder. The entity is the one that then holds that property. Whereas you can understand if it's three families that own that directly, you know, you've got to go and get six signatures on documentation. Otherwise, otherwise you can have one director of the trustee company who's facilitating that on behalf of the, the, the investors. Yeah, interesting one. And, and we, we've just actually personally just gone and bought uh, an investment property in our trust, family trust, and uh, actually quite straightforward from a borrowing perspective, which was quite relieving because when you think buying in a trust, you think complications and lots yeah. of paperwork and companies and personals and all that, but it's because you're the guarantor, uh, you, they're just assessing your personal income anyway, aren't they? That's correct. And that, that's the way normally in most family groups, it is all intertwined together. 
right? Um, and it also depends. If you've got other, it could be that you have a trust already set up and the trust is earning income in its own right. So therefore, having a property in there um, that's negatively geared can can absolutely work because you've got income offsetting any losses or otherwise in that in that entity. Hmm. Awesome. That's great. That's great stuff because, yeah, I think we, we do get a lot of people come to us and say, oh, my accountant's recommended I buy this in a trust. And and, and I don't know about you, Emily, but I have alarm bells when when someone comes to me like that because it, it is a small proportion of first home buyers that would be doing that. Yeah, and, and look, probably the other key point is that, that um, the, the principal place of residence is given up the second you buy it in a trust, right? So all those examples that we said before about moving in and out of the property, um, it being a main residence, like you you cannot claim CGT free in the trust, right? So if you just if you buy property in a trust and then you think, oh yeah, it was going to be investment, but then you you change your mind and move into that property, okay? You cannot get that property CGT free. You are always deeming that property taxable, okay? The only way is you're going to have to transfer it out to yourself, mm, right? Costly. Which is very costly mm. because you're paying stamp duty. Yeah. But you would still get the 50% exemption. You'd still get the 50% exemption? That's correct. Yeah. You just wouldn't get the main residence exemption. So I think it's probably the point is it's more an invest, an investor yeah. decision, yeah. right? You wouldn't be considering it if it's a property that you might may want to live in or you don't already own any family home. So a little bit of change of tack. Madison Hunter says, I know people use negative gearing to reduce their personal income tax. Is this applicable for all expenses or is it the depreciation portion only? I just flipped my PPR to an investment in June and spent money on expenses for the house, i.e. skip bin, plumber, depreciation schedule, etc. Even if I get a tenant in the next week or so, my expenses will outweigh income from rent this financial year. Can I apply it to my personal income or will I need to wait? wait till the next financial year and bring expenses forward and apply to next year's rent money. So what she's saying is she's spent more money than she's earned after converting it. Uh, what can she claim? What can't she claim? Yeah, good look and uh, good question, Madison. Look, just I'll try and go through a couple of things and answer it. So um, the way negative gearing works, just and I know I know all your a lot of your listeners are right on this, but just to explain is it, it, it's basically your expenses are greater than the income earned. So the the expenses are not just linked to depreciation portion. It, it it's all the expenses that you incur in owning that and earning that income on that rental property. So um, repairs, um, property agent fees, rates, insurance, interest, and otherwise. Right. So just the key thing is that there's no limitation on those expenses as long as they're categorised between what I just said before about the, they relate to the rent. Okay. There are some rules around um, when the expenses are incurred, okay, and and also this argument about is the property available for rent or, or income is being earned on it. So someone who goes about buying a property, um, leaves it empty for two or three months, carries out a reno on that property, okay, or does a whole lot of improvements or repairs on it and then decides to then list it with an agent Basically, all those expenses incurred before it was available for rent are not tax deductible to that individual. Okay. Um, so there's a difference between fixing a leaking tap, uh, tap, right? Whilst you have a tenant in there versus doing a whole lot of work before the tenant moves in. Okay. You don't lose those. 
costs, you actually are meant to add them to the cost base on the property, which means when you finally sell it, you, they're added, they reduce your tax payable when it's sold, right? So I think the key point is, is that list, planning around, um, a property being available for rent, um, planning around when you incur some expenses are quite important. And, and available for rent is, is normally defined that it's with an agent or listed ready to be rented. Right. So whilst it's available for rent, you may have a situation where tenant moves out and for six weeks it's listed with an agent. You don't get another tenant. Right. That's not, that's still available for rent. Right. The fact you didn't get a tenant isn't, you, you, you tried to get a tenant. Yeah. So I, I hope that answers some of her questions around when, when it gets allocated and when you spend the money. Um, yeah. So th- one thing I would probably add to that is for Madison, She's probably saying, well, I need a skip in because I need to clean this joint up. I need a plumber because there's stuff leaking. I need to do all these things to get a tenant. So I can't avoid it, yeah. right? So yes, I can't claim it in my in, in this financial year, but it's not lost, as you mentioned. Uh, when I sell the property, I'll get all that back. We just need to keep documentation of that. Um, but the one thing that annoys me was going to view a property as an investor. We cannot claim. That annoys me every year at this time. Yeah, so the travel expenses all all got cut back, and look, that that that's a really good important point, John. Probably at um on, on cost based records, you know, we spoke a lot before about um expenses and income worksheets, but but maintaining a cost base master is also important. Um, the reason I say that is is often um, people do spend money on improving properties. Okay. So they may go about spending a whole lot of money on a renovation. They may go and incur all these costs. And then what happens is when it gets sold, so they buy it, they buy it for say 500. They go and spend 250 on it. They sell it for a mill. But the only two records that are on the public register are the price you bought it at and the price you sold it at. Right. So if that's ever reviewed at the, the, the ATR or the land titles office, are assuming you've made 500. No one knows that you spent 250 improving that property unless you've kept good records on that and you should be tracking that. So all those things, you know, all your conveyancing costs up front, any money spent on improvements, especially renovations. Renovations are probably the big one because often people forget you get eight years down the track, people have moved home again. You say to them, did you spend some money on it? Oh, yeah, I did, but I don't have any of the records. Mm, right. and, and, and especially as time goes by, receipts fade and everything else. So there's good online systems where you can take a photo of your receipt and yep. just plug it straight in. Like, do, Have you got an example of one that you guys use for your clients? Or, uh, oh, John, I, 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 I'm not close enough to the technology <laughs> space at the moment. Have you, Emily? I just put everything in a shared Google Drive, that, that, a folder that correlates to the property. We, we, use, we use Microsoft. We use OneNote. But, but yeah. similarly, we take, we take photos, we save them into folders and, and, and yeah. use a lot of SharePoint, SharePoint and so directories. It's interesting because I just did, even with my own investment property, I vacated the current tenant, did works to get it up to speed to re-let. And it was like a 200 a week difference in the mm. rent. And then now the tenants have moved in and my property manager's called me three times this week. I've had leaking taps. I've had an oven that doesn't work. And there was something else. Like things always come in threes, right? But they will be because they're claimable while it's actually being currently leased. Whereas the work I did prior to that and it wasn't available online or anything goes to my cost base. Spot on. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And then and look, 
Um, and it's it's fascinating. And look, we're probably talking a bit off topic here, but it goes to that when you increase the rent. I can tell you how many times when people have gone and increased the rent for the clients that then they get all the R&M requests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Repairs and maintenance for those that um, are understanding acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> I thought so, you were going to delete that bit. <laughs> no, no. So, so wheeling, I suppose, back around on the whole topics of what we're speaking about, generally speaking, we need to be on top of our game. We're, we're treating this property investing thing as a business, aren't we? And we need to be uh, documenting everything. We need to not just to spend two weeks in June fluffing around trying to get all those records together. We're, we're doing it on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis to ensure that it's a smooth process with your accountant at, at this time of year or, or whenever you do your tax return. But the, the sensitive topic at the moment is rental increase. Right. As an investor, we're there to serve the community and, and house people, but we're also there to make money and, f- and future wealth creation for our family. So uh, like I had an example yesterday where a client said they've increased um, since they bought it five years ago, it's gone from 550 to now 870 right? That's like over $300 in five years, which is extremely uh, now unaffordable for a lot of people. So um, at the same time, we've got to be realist in, the, in what is market rent out there right? And do we cut off our nose to spite our face when the vacancy rates are low? We've got to make sure that we're we're charging at least market rent, I think. But what we can be doing on the back end is reviewing our insurances, um, looking at all our running expenses of our property and saying, well, where can we trim the fat here to make sure we get a better profitable outcome? Oh, I, th- I think you're spot on. This this is the great work that John, you and Emily do do with the clients that you work with. And, and, and hence why we're, we're continually trying to educate as many people as possible but you know you, you're you're investing large sums of capital and, and 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 it shouldn't be looked at that okay i just sit there set and forget let time go by and it all works out like yes that can happen but that's that's that has a degree of complacency and laziness attached to it you know through the middle all those things like you just spoke about should be looked at you know and it should be nearly conducting it with the lens of of, of a micro business you know, I, I've got an amount of money invested. I want to maximise the yield on it. I want to minimise the the um, cost structure on it because it all flows into the investment thesis, does it? Like the higher the yield the property receives often correlates with w- how much it could be valued by a bank or by an investor, which means how much you may earn from an investment perspective or when you can go and buy your next property. Mm, mm. Absolutely. So true. Yeah. It's certainly, um, I think, in all the conversations today, it just highlights how much people need experts in their corner. Like, how are you supposed to know all this stuff, right? It, it's it's such a complex minefield of all these things you need to consider and think about and be across. And obviously, the podcast does provide an element of education, but there is nothing like having a professional in your corner um, when it comes to owning an investment property and actually getting the right advice to maximise that investment because at the end of the day, if you're not actually maximising, you know, what's what's the point in having it if you're not putting time and energy into to getting a return? Mm, absolutely, yeah. All right, Scott, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, we've covered some really good topics there. Hopefully our listeners have got a lot out of it. If you need an accountant, uh, feel free to reach out to Altus Financial, Scott and his team. Um, but if nothing else, make sure you've got a good accountant in your corner to maximise the work that you're doing as an investor. So uh, pleasure to chat again today, Emily. 
Indeed. Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate all your insights. And for those listening, um, if you're not a member of the Facebook group yet, you definitely should be My Millennial Money. You can ask questions of us or uh, suggest an expert that you might like for us to have on the show as well. We always love hearing from you and appreciate uh, you listening. And thanks to all those who asked those questions today. They were good ones, weren't they? They were. It was great. And thank you, John. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, everyone. Until next week. All right. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Cybo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.